and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am um, I'm a, I'm a little uh, sort of nervous, giddy um, this morning because uh, rather than do what we normally do, which is try to cram Hayek, Friedrich von Hayek nerdery in at the margins and seams of other conversations, we decided to do a frontal assault on the topic this morning, and uh, we 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 literally have uh i i use literally only modestly figuratively um the pope of hayekian nerdery um we have bruce caldwell he's the director of the center for the history of political economy and as well as a research professor of economics at duke university um he is also the general editor of the collected works of friedrich hayek um and he has he is working uh on a two-volume um, uh, biography, full full biography of Friedrich Hayek. He already wrote the intellectual bi- an intellectual biography of Hayek in two thousand four, um, and the first volume of his two-volume uh, history uh, or biography of Hayek has come out, um, and it's called Hayek: A Life. Uh, I will allow. Professor Caldwell to pronounce the first name of his co-author on this. Um, Hans Jörg Klausinger. Hans Jörg Klausinger, uh, who's a German speaker, um, is the co-author, and the second volume is going to come out any day now. I am sure. Um, Professor Caldwell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and cannot wait. A full Monty Hayek session. I love it. <laughs> um, so um, normally. I, my standard go-to question for authors, because it's the question I always like to get when I'm on a book tour, is what's your book about? But uh, since we now know that your book is about Friedrich Hayek, why don't we start with sort of like, when you account, not someone who doesn't know anything, right? But like somebody who's modestly educated, has heard of Hayek, but really doesn't understand what the big deal is. How would you answer them the question, who is who was Friedrich Hayek? Sure. So Friedrich Hayek is a famous 20th century economist. He was born in Vienna. If you look at the cover of the book, it is a picture of a man with a tie on in Lederhosen in the Alps somewhere or some sort of mountain scene. And uh, and I think it captures him in the sense that he... uh, his roots are, are very much in Austria, but he moved in the 30s to England and during the tumult of the 1930s uh, became a British citizen. So he's actually described as an Austrian-born British economist, typically, and he stayed there until 1950 when he moved to the University of Chicago. Uh, he was in Chicago for 12 years to 62 and then moved uh Back to Europe, he lived in in Germany for a while, and then Austria, and then back in Germany. So his his life was really a 20th century life, and he's an economist who wrote in areas well outside of economics as well, so made lots of different other sorts of contributions. You said that I wrote an intellectual biography earlier. 
that book would be Hayek's challenge. And although it is uh, very much uh, an intellectual biography, it's not a full intellectual biography in that it, it focuses mostly on his contributions to the strange subfield of economic methodology. So this is one of the many areas to which he contributed, economics, uh, 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 political theory, uh, uh, psychology, a book called The Sensory Order. So he wrote in, in lots of different areas. And I, I think one reason why he's such an intriguing figure is, first of all, um, he knew almost everyone <laughs> uh, who was famous. He, he, he was at the right place at the right time. He was in England when Keynes was doing the general theory, and he was one of his, his chief opponents. Uh, as as the welfare state was developing, he was uh, a chief uh, opponent of that. Some of the people who who wrote books that helped uh, helped uh, uh, create the welfare state, uh, Lord Beveridge and his Beveridge report in England. Uh, he was the director of the LSE where Hayek was teaching. Uh, Hayek went to the University of Chicago around the time that the Chicago School of Economics was forming. So he he was he's just a really great person to to look at his biography, but also see the development of economics in the 20th century. And what's wonderful about it is he, he always took a contrary view in virtually all of the major developments within economics uh, and also within uh, just uh, uh, politics in general. His was, his was generally a, a minority view. And uh, he was sanguine about that. He understood it. Uh, uh, but he was, uh, he was a person who continued to articulate his views. So it's a I've I've been working on him for many many years. This first volume one of of the uh, biography, uh, my co-author and I worked on it for about a decade, just because there's so much rich stuff to to try to to find out. And I think it's fair to to tell the readers um, or or listeners uh, who may potentially be readers that the reason it took uh, ten years was that we we took a very deep dive into all sorts of archival and family uh, uh, documents. Uh, but also we wanted very much to tell tell a, a full story, uh, not only about his ideas, but but about his life. And his life uh, was also interesting, as it turns out. So so it was uh, it's it's been a fun uh, ride so far. And now we have volume two, which should not it's not going to be out tomorrow, but it is uh, it's not going to take us 10 years because we've done the, a lot of the background research as necessary for both volumes. Right. And, and so this book basically ends around. The Road to Serfdom's publication. Actually, right? it, it ends in 1950 when he when he's making his uh, decision to move and and finally finalize his contract to move to the University of Chicago. Uh, so it's, it it picks up volume two picks up with his years at the University of Chicago, where he was on the Committee on Social Thought, which itself a very interesting institution at the university. Um, OK, so uh, some and I'm going to apologize to listeners in advance. I'm going to try and ask questions and elucidate things to help the layman understand, but there are going to be times where I'm just going to fall into sort of second or third order Hayek geekdom. And, um, and I just hope listeners can, can play along. First of all, just a, a very sort of just a quick factual question. When did he learn English? Like, did he always speak English? What other languages did he know? Some students at the LSE uh, said when he was lecturing that they couldn't tell whether he was speaking English in a German accent or German in an English accent. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a long <laughs> a long process for people who have have heard uh, interviews of him. There's there's there are a number of them online. He did a a, a long series of uh, autobiographical 
interviews uh, in the late 70s after he'd done, won the Nobel Prize, interviewed by a lot of great people from Robert Bork to Jim Buchanan, uh, lots of lots of uh, prominent uh, uh, folks. Um, so he came to America on a visit when he was in his early 20s. This was in 1923 and 24. And he apparently took a Berlitz class to try to um, quickly learn English uh, then. He he uh, he had to study English on uh, kind of on his own as well as any any modern language because uh, the gymnasium or or high school that he went to uh, the kind of training that they had was in ancient languages like Greek and Latin. Uh, so when you read his stuff, you'll see lots of <laughs> references to Greek and Latin, which is uh, perplexing to a modern reader. But that's that's the training that he had. So he picked it up on his own. He spoke a lot of languages. He was he fought on the Italian front and picked up some Italian uh, uh, during World War One. Uh, he picked up French. I'm not sure where he always said that he, he wasn't very confident in his French. Um, but certainly in in his uh, in his move to London, uh, initially, uh, yeah, as I told you the story about the students, uh, there were there were other stories about people having a hard time following him, uh, but they could clearly see that he was a brilliant mind and had done some brilliant work in monetary theory. And that's why they offered him a job at the, at the London school of economics. But he, he didn't pick up Hungarian when he was in the Austro Hungarian empire or anything, did he? So I don't think so. His father, uh, there's correspondence during the first world war where, uh, Fritz, which is what his family called him was, uh, kind of bored. Um, because they were they were at a, on a line that was a fixed line that just was maintained over a period of months and months, and it was the the separating uh, uh, what separated the two sides was this wide uh, malaria <laughs> infested uh, a river, uh, and neither side wanted to make a push. Uh, the 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 Austrians were happy to have taken, uh, you know, he, he just missed an initiative in which the Austrians advanced their lines quite a bit. Having advanced their lines, they could live off the countryside, and, and they were quite happy with that. And the Italians uh, just didn't want to go get driven any further back, so they had been reinforced by the British, and it was just kind of a stagnant line. And so he was bored, and his father said, look, you ought to yeah, do what I'm doing. Yeah, brush up on languages, uh, you know. We're, we both like botany. See if you can find any specimens. So his father was was giving him instruction on how to use his time more fruitfully. <laughs> uh, typical father son relation. The only reason I asked about the Hungarian is as my dad had this theory that that Hungarians, particularly Hungarian Jews, so because Hungarian Jews would grow up learning Hebrew and Yiddish but also Hungarian and Hungarian being like the hardest language in the universe. All other languages sound like baby talk compared to Hungarian <laughs> and it makes it very easy for them to learn. And so like, I mean, he wasn't Jewish, but Eric von Knut Ledeen, who was a writer for national review, he spoke like 14 languages um, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway. So, you know, as you know, Hayek wrote uh, this essay, I think it was in the Chicago law review intellectuals and socialism. Yes. And, um, and a big part of his argument was the importance of, uh, of intellectuals to spread ideas. He says the rise of socialism would have been impossible without essentially the intellectuals 
being uh, sort of laying the groundwork for it. And which, you know, Irving Crystal, lots of people made similar points. Um, but he called intellectuals professional secondhand dealers and ideas. What did Hayek consider himself? Was did he consider himself first and foremost an economist, an intellectual, a philosopher, and and where would you classify him? So I think that what his goal was. Let, let me give you the the background to that paper, and I think it will help help uh, me answer that question. Great question. So the Mod Pellerin Society has its first meeting. Its founding meeting in 1947. This is a meeting of, of people who are concerned about the direction of the post-war world. Uh, all of them are people who embrace what we would call today classical liberal ideas, uh, although they disagreed about the details. And they also disagreed about what the Mont Pelerin Society should be. Hayek's view was that it was a place to have conversations among people who were like-minded but who might disagree to try to iron out the foundations and philosophical principles that would underlie a liberalism that could be viable uh, and attractive in the 20th century. This is a period when liberalism is, is it may have been at its nadir in the 30s. Uh, the, the fact that uh, the Cold War was about to begin uh, may have made it somewhat more attractive uh, in 1947, but it was still a view that was, you know, he felt that he knew a few people in each, each country <laughs> who were among the intellectuals who, who would have sympathy with these views, and that's why he decided to have this organization. Now, some of the other people at the, um, at the meeting and in subsequent meetings, next couple of meetings, uh, said, no, what we need to do is to uh, get out there and get our views known to the wider public, that we should be the secondhand dealers in ideas for liberal thought. Hayek was adamant that he rejected that view. He said, our, our goal is to, is to formulate the ideas and, and, and argue them out amongst ourselves uh, so that we get to something that may be a, a consensus view, but at least a, a view that we can, uh, that we can articulate and then others will will get it out there. So um, this was actually written uh, initially uh, and sent uh, to some of the people who were the foundation people who were helping to fund uh, the meeting. It was the Volcker Fund was the one that helped fund the uh, American uh, participants in that first meeting. And there was someone who was a, a Affiliated not directly with the Volcker Fund, but he had his his finger in every every pot actually in terms of the foundation's name, uh, Lauren Red Miller, and he had met with Miller, and we can I we show in the in the book that uh, soon after meeting with him, in his notes he's starting to sketch out this argument that appeared in the Intellectuals and in Socialism, and subsequently we found we found uh, you know correspondence between Hayek and Dick Ware, who was at the Earhart Foundation later, uh, who said this, this particular article really became a, a very important article for us in terms of trying to figure out what we were doing as a foundation and trying to promote classical liberal ideas. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's a long answer to your question, 
I don't think he would characterize himself as an intellectual, although I think most people would look at him and not knowing the way he's making that that particular distinction and say, yeah, this is a this is definitely an intellectual uh, because he's, he's you know, he's writing books in all sorts of areas within economics and then well outside his field and and uh, and and influential books. <laughs> Every one of them in, in various ways had had uh, either had or should have <laughs> perhaps should have had an influence. Um, so. Uh, uh, that was what he was doing with that article anyway. He was saying, let's let's think about that. And you know, I mentioned foundations. You think about things like the Institute of Economic Affairs in, in London and other think tanks around, around uh, the world at this point. Uh, all of them are kind of t- picking up uh, on articulating. So maybe some of them are, 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 the, are the secondhand dealers in ideas, but you have to have ideas before you, you deal them. And so his his uh, his bailiwick was was trying to figure out the ideas and giving them a, a strong foundation. And so, would you call him primarily if you had to pick a label, economist, intellectual, or philosopher? Which one would you apply to him? That's a great question. I call him a social theorist. That's what I've called him uh, be, before, and I think that that covers that covers it because he did take a theoretical approach to all of the things that he uh, he tried to analyze. Um, he viewed himself as a scientist, uh, even when he's uh, if, if, if you take a look at the sensory order, his book on psychology, uh, it's it's done in a scientific uh, manner. It's, it's one of his most difficult books and certainly his, his uh, economics is that way. So I'd say a social theorist. Yeah. So um, right, let's let's try to clear out some low hanging fruit here. Um, when people say the Austrian school what do we mean and who is in it? Yes. So that first book that I mentioned, Hayek's Challenge, uh, the first third of it or so is actually about the Austrian school of economics. So Hayek came out of a tradition that originated in Austria. People who know a little bit about the history of economics know that what we today call microeconomics had its origins in the 1870s, the simultaneous discovery of what's called the marginal principle. Don't worry about that if you don't know about it. But it's it it was occurring in, in Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, in in Austria with Karl Menger, uh, William Stanley Jevons in in England. And this uh, transformed classical economics into what might be called later uh, neoclassical economics. So the Austrian school was part of this transition uh, to a new way of thinking about economics. Out of this came things like, in England, Alfred Marshall's supply and demand curves. So this is this is where supply and demand curves being drawn that everyone who's taken economics either loved or hated, but certainly remembered, uh, uh, came out of this revolution. So the Austrian school came out of that tradition, but uh, it was also different from the others. Each, each one of these uh, schools had their own particular emphasis and in Austria, they ended up being in opposition uh, to uh, other ideas and schools that were emerging. Within economics, their opponents were the German historical school. So the Austrians tended to be more theoretical rather than historical in their approach to, to understanding social phenomena. Um, uh, they ultimately came also up against uh, uh, positivists. So the positivists within philosophy movement uh, is 
something perhaps we don't we don't need to go into, but but certainly was one of their the things that they that they reacted against. And finally, socialism and and Marxism. And within Austria, this was called Austro-Marxism. One of the interesting uh, things about the early school is that the generation. So, if Karl Menger is the first generation Austrian economist, uh, his successor would have been Friedrich Wieser, who was Hayek's teacher, and Eugen von Bomberg. Bomberg uh, ran a seminar that had um, a wonderful cast of characters in it, including people who are famous even now in the in the pantheon of economists. Uh, uh, Joseph Schumpeter uh, participated. Ludwig von Mises. Uh, but also Otto Neurath, who was a positivist philosopher of science and 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 uh, socialist, as well as uh, some of the leading uh, people who went on to to lead Red Vienna in the 1920s. People who were academics who who came into the government uh, in the in the uh, immediate post-war period. So it's it's a rich history. Uh, the Austrian school is is defined by an interest in capital theory, uh, in subjectivism. In its approach to uh, economic uh, topics, and uh, as as opponents of socialism, and even Ludwig von Mises most famously had had a, an article and then a book that was uh, critical of socialism in the early 1920s, and Hayek carried on that that debate when he got to England with various English socialists at the London School of Economics. So I seem to recall that. The reason it became called the Austrian school was like so many of these things, it began as a pejorative yes. from the German historicists, right? Precisely. I mean, um, and the the, the 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 German historicists speaking in broad brushstrokes were of a school very influential on American progressives, uh, but were um, believed in this sort of uh, subjectivity or relativism of uh, historical context, right? We actually get the word empathy empathy from uh, a German word uh, from the historicists. And the way I always took it was that the, what they thought was pejorative about the Austrian school was that it was more universal in its approach to economics, which said that there are laws that don't just apply to Germany, but that apply to human beings in economic activity everywhere is that wrong that is that the is that epistemological difference not part of it that is it's very much part of it so so Ger the german empire was um among german speaking lands uh was academically the 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 people in charge um uh in the late 1800s and the austrian Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, they had beaten it <laughs> in a war. Uh, they were they were kind of a backwater uh, intellectually. So, just to the origin of the Austrian school, if a German is saying, "Well," asked a German professor in the German historical school is asked, "Well, what do you think about about what they're doing in Vienna?" Uh, you you could just imagine the person. Yeah, throwing their hands and saying, "Oh, that's that's Austrian economics." Okay, so that's that's the sense in which it was used. So, what were what were the differences? Well, the Austrians, um, both of them rejected the classical school. Okay, the approach of of a labor theory of value that came out of Adam Smith and uh, and Ricardo and and was picked up by Marx. 
in in fact. And and uh, so they said we the Austrians said, well, we still think there's a a theoretical approach to be taken, and that's our marginalism. The German historical school said, look, the British used this uh, this approach to argue for free trade uh, when the British Empire was the was the only game in town, the one that really controlled the seas. And what we think is the policies that people should embrace, that countries should embrace, should take into account their local situation, who their trading partners are, what the morals of the country are. We have to have a really precise understanding of all of that before we can say what policies are the appropriate policies for a particular country. So they didn't want to go along with free trade. They were critics of free trade. They called this Manchesterismus because this is where the the the, uh, the free traders in England uh, were associated with the Corn Law League and, and etc. And and uh, so they were they were critical of any theoretical approach that would that was supposed to be universal. Now uh, there's a nice illustration of a rebuke uh, of the tor- of the sort that would be uh, possible for that kind of view. Um, it, it said that uh, that one of the marginalists uh, uh, was uh, visiting one of his friends who who disagreed with uh, with this and said, uh, "Look, is there a place in town where I can get something to eat?" He said, "Oh, there's lots of places in town. A place where I can get a free lunch." And the guy said, "I'm I'm, I'm sorry, you know, what do you mean? Uh, you, do you need some money?" He says, "Well, no. I'm just illustrating the laws of economics. There aren't any places where you can go and get a free lunch." And uh, so there are some basic things that are that are, uh, you know, most most people's assessment of what was called the Methodenstreit, the 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 debate over methods uh, that took place between the German historical school and the and the Austrian school at the end of the century, as as a waste of intellectual energy, uh, because both uh, knowledge of of institutions and and uh, particular specifics of a of a particular country are are important. But there are also general principles, which uh, which if you if you try to make policy and don't and don't uh, understand them, uh, it's it's a recipe for um, for the sorts of disastrous policies that are everywhere in evidence throughout throughout history. Let me test out a theory. I'm always nervous when I have very strong opinions that then actually actually be tested against experts. Um, but um, I've been. I've had this riff about Hayek for a very long time. I get the Hayek, why the Hayek-Keynes debate fascinates a lot of economists. It it all reads like witchcraft to me. I mean, I I, I basically I'm on I'm on team Hayek, obviously. Um, similarly, with the the what was it the price calculation debate that von Mises and all those guys interesting stuff. But it seems to me that the most interesting debate in some ways of the 20th century. And again, it's a figurative debate because I don't think that they actually had much interaction with each other. Um, is sort of symbolically between Hayek and John Dewey, and the argument I would make is that Dewey, better than almost anybody else, represents the cult of the expert. This idea that the individual can amass enough knowledge and expertise so as to outthink the market, outthink systems. Um, uh, and impose optimal policies down, right? It's it's um, sort of Politburo thinking, and um, and it infected so much of the progressive movement in the United States. And Hayek represents and and really articulates the opposite point of view, 
which is that no individual can outthink, reliably outthink the market, that there are things that come through the price mechanism and things like the price mechanism that um, you don't know, you can't even, you can't even know how much knowledge is in prices. There's just so much knowledge in it, right? You don't know all the factors that are going into it. And that's why you need, why open, fair, competitive systems are more important than trying to impose results. And it seems to me that those two worldviews broadly defined really sort of in both strident and modest forms define most of the intellectual, political, political and economic conflicts of the 20th century. What say you, sir? <laughs> I hate to disappoint you if you're looking for an argument, but I agree with you completely. The abuse abuse and decline of reason project was something that Hayek began as he saw World War II getting ready to begin, and it was going to be his war effort. He didn't ever finish it, but he, that was something that the road to serfdom was part of it. So he did, he did finish parts of it. But it, this was prompted by him having had three intellectual experiences. First, he, was, he grew up in the Austrian, uh, yeah, Austro-Hungarian Empire and then in Austria in the post-war period as a student of Austrian economics as opposed to the German historical school. The German historical school were, were, were conservative imperialists, nationalists, and they, they were just trying to catch the German empire up with the other empires that existed out there. In 1923 and 24, Hayek goes to the United States, in New York, and he studies with Wesley Clare Mitchell. And as you said earlier, a lot of American progressives, uh, the, where they got their intellectual ammunition from was from American academics going over to Germany in the 1880s, 1890s, and studying with the German Historical School and coming back and, and transferring some of these ideas to the United States within a new context, okay? So these are American progressives. These are not German <laughs> imperialists, uh, but they share a certain view about what could be done by the state and what the, the role of the state, the appropriate role of the state, and what state experts, German historical school said, look, we, we, we're going to support the German empire and we need to have lots and lots and lots of students doing these, doing these uh, research pro projects because they're also going to fill up the bureaucracy in, um, in the empire. He gets to England in the 30s and it's the Fabian socialists. And they have, so you've got progressives, you've got socialists, you've got conservatives. Something they all shared was what Hayek came to call scientism, the view that you can scientifically uh, uh, shape society, shape the institutions of society, uh, intervene in, in, in markets and other areas of society uh, on a scientific basis. So just leave it to the experts. They're going to reform things. They're going to build a better world. And depending on which country you were in, the world that they thought is a better world was a very different world. But they all had the same kind of worldview as to what was possible. And I think what you were identifying there uh, very, very nicely, I must say, uh, was the contrast between these two worldviews. Hayek was was quite pessimistic about the ability of of planners to be able to accomplish this. 
And his particular targets um, in the 1930s in Britain were uh, the socialists. Uh, but, you know, he he understood that this was a phenomenon that went w- well beyond socialism. So the socialist calculation debate was, as, as you said, this is a debate among uh, professional economists. And it becomes quite technical at times. And and certainly the 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 debate with Keynes, uh, in if you read their books, the a treatise on money and uh, prices and production, and contrast them. I mean, you could you could spend a lot of time and not get very far with those books uh, because they're they're models uh, without any mathematics, and so you they're they're very difficult to read. But the worldviews, the worldviews that were behind those two. Debates and the debates that went forward are, are the sorts of things that you were you identified in your in your the uh, the prologue to your question. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people that in a lot of ways, Road to Serfdom may have been Hayek's most important book in terms of political significance and cultural significance. But it's not the book I would recommend if you're going to read one book by Friedrich Hayek. I wouldn't say read the Road to Serfdom. I would say you know I always tell people I mean, constitutional liberty is a big bite to chew um but i always tell people if you want to sort of get it it's fatal conceit um um you know and i know among hardcore hayek types there are problems with that book but like for the layman who wants to just sort of to be able to understand the sort of broad brushstroke ideas i think it's the best one i mean i'd be curious to know if if you disagree but um on so on the road to serfdom one of the reasons why i don't say people should read that if they're only going to read one book is that it's i think road service is fine i generally agree with it but i read it in good faith right so i'm, I'm not i'm not talking about the caricature of the book um and i and i agree with russ roberts that it should be that we that it's prophecy but people forget that prophecy isn't necessarily prediction prophecy is a warning right my namesake jonah says get yourself get your act together Nineveh or you're going to have a problem it doesn't say no matter what you do <laughs> you're going to have a problem right it's a prophecy is a, is a is a way to warn people how to get right with god or right with history or right with it, whatever and that was sort of what hayek was trying to do there in a polemical fashion um where do you come down on on the road to serfdom was he more right than wrong more wrong than right um uh did he ever have any regrets about writing the book, not because of what he actually wrote, but because of the way it was sort of turned into an accusation of crack pottery? I mean, wh- where do you come down on the whole chapter of his life? Yeah, so he uh, he wrote the book during World War II, and he was afraid that England in particular, which was his initial audience was going to go down the road of, of socialism in the post-war. And he had good reason to fear that. And in fact, um, the British Labor Party won in a landslide uh, in the post-war period and, and began a series of nationalizations, uh, kind of hit, hit the high point of their nationalizations in 1948 and then kind of backed off a bit. But uh, very much going in the direction of a welfare state, and he was worried about about that that direction. But he wrote it as a liberal, not as a conservative. And one of the first things that he noticed, both in England and then when it was published, uh, an American edition was published six months later, uh, 
in the United States, that it was being embraced by people who were who would self-identify, I think, as as conservatives, and it was vilified by people who would be on on the progressive left wing, and and so it, it quickly became a caricature, and and the idea that it was a it was say, it was making a prediction <laughs> that if you have a little bit of government, uh, your uh, additional government, you're going to end up uh, in a totalitarian state, and and as you said, it it was a warning. It was a warning. He said he's setting up tendencies that are are difficult to reverse as they go along, and and they can have very bad consequences. Um, so he his initial feeling was that it it, uh, it may have been uh, misinterpreted uh, by lots of people, but this was the immediate post war period. It was a very it was a, it was a politically contentious uh, uh, time. And when I say he was writing as a liberal, if you take a if you take a look at that first chapter of the book, it's the abandoned road. And the abandoned road is the, the road of liberalism. And you said that the book that you like is the Constitution of Liberty. I, I like that book very much too, because uh, some of the reaction to the road to serfdom was, well, okay, this is a this is a good criticism of the of of what uh, what you don't want to see happening. Uh, you know, the, the limitations of, of of a setup that is is socialistic. But what's your vision? What's your vision of, of the alternative? And that's what he's trying to articulate, as you say, in the Constitution of Liberty. So I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't back off from saying to to people when you recommend a, a book by Hayek that that would be a good one. I would also say that for those who have had any economics, the use of knowledge in society is is a wonderful piece. It 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 tries to lay out uh, just how a, a, a well functioning price mechanism can can allow us to share information. It's it's a it's a marvelous uh, uh, invention that was never invented. It just emerged. So it's it's an example of a spontaneous uh, order that 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 emerges when you have the right uh, institutional constraints in place that that allow uh, social cooperation on a vast scale. Uh, it's it's the theoretical underpinning underpinnings of Bastiat's uh, wonderful phrase: "Paris gets fed." Yeah, no one plans to feed Paris. Uh, there's no person who says, "I'm going to feed Paris." Uh, millions of people uh, uh, every day, every day, day in and day out, uh, coordinate their behavior in such a way that that indeed Paris gets fed, as do millions of other cities. Um, so that's a good actual. Actually, let me ask you this very quickly on that. Um, can you uh, explain why Hayek was so interested in English common law? I mean, is the a friend of mine was saying how he had seen an interview where he was trying to come up with to try to find what was lacking in the field of economics in terms of understanding how certain principles emerge naturally. And that's why he got attracted to English common law. Is that right? And and can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So he was he trained as a lawyer. OK, that was what his his first degree was in. And that was the way that uh, that economics was was taught. Uh, at the turn of the century in German language, German speaking uh, uh, areas, uh, you know, the, the the fields had not uh, had not become siloized, as it were, uh, in the way that they are uh, today. So he had a, a, a legal background, and my speculation, my hypothesis on all this is that we talked about the the market as a spontaneous order. Uh, he also uh, did his book on psychology, and he he viewed the the workings of the of the brain 
as creating an order. So you've got the gazillions of neuronal connections, just like you have millions of people cooperating in, in feeding Paris. You've got millions of, of or billions, actually, of neuronal connections that are creating what we call consciousness. I mean, these neurons are not trying to create consciousness, but it's creating this larger order that allows uh, us to to have the experiences that we do. And he wrote that book in the uh, was writing it in the late forties, published in the early fifties, and he's working on the Constitution of Liberty. Um, he's looking at the various uh, things that emerged through time in various countries that contributed to uh, a liberal regime. Uh, looking at the American founding, looking at traditions that that emerged in uh, in, in in France and and England uh, rather and and in. in and in fact, in Germany. And I think he um, started to recognize the common law as another kind of example of something that is, is no one is planning it. It's not like legislation uh, that is specifically designed to uh, uh, address a particular issue. It's something that by precedent over time emerges. And it emerges in a way that can be, uh, yeah, he, he, he recognized that sometimes it can go off in, in the wrong directions. You're not, he's not saying whatever emerges is good. He certainly was not saying that, um, uh, that it could be corrected uh, and, and, and in many cases, in, in instances should be corrected through legislation. Uh, you know, we, slavery was gotten rid of. <laughs> it was something that emerged. Uh, but his his confidence that um, it, that there are certain areas in which orders emerge that can uh, create uh, a great advantages for the population. Uh, I think that 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 was at the basis of his increasing attention to the common law as you get into the into the sixties and seventies. Uh, you see it mostly in law legislation and liberty uh, uh, than you do in in constitution of liberty. So, all right, th th this this one might go over the heads of some listeners, but um, so in the early chapters of 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 the constitutional liberty, um, Hayek basically is sort of a. I'll be careful about the adjectives before the word utilitarian, but he's a utilitarian of a of a certain order, um, and that he says he is. Recommendations for the means of society are pretty much the same as as ends, whatever works. Um, um, and he says that he likes religious tradition, but his basic test for religious tradition is um, basically just whatever traditions survive over time, in effect. And um, it's those passages, like uh, in a couple different essays, including when virtue loses all her loveliness, which is just a fascinating essay by Irving Kristol that it, and it, it, it hurts me. It makes me feel like my parents are getting divorced when Irving and Irving Kristol and Friedrich Hayek fight because um, I love them both so much. Um, but he basically calls Hayek just an abject moral relativist there. Um, was Hayek a moral relativist? Does he, does he have a, a, um, a vision of the higher good or is it simply his vision of the higher good is a um, a procedural one more than a sort of a, a theological or, or 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 ethical one. So Hayek's epilogue to the Constitution of Liberty is why I'm not a conservative. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. Trust me. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> if you look at his personal lifestyle, he was a conservative. <laughs> I mean, he had a very uh, uh, traditional sort of approach to things. He, he was, if, if Roger Scruton wants to emphasize the importance of beauty, he had a great appreciation of beauty. I'm, I've spent the last two weeks reading his diary from his trip to duplicate John Stuart Mill's trip in 1854 and 1855 through Greece, Italy, and uh, France, and and looking at all of the monuments and reacting to them. So he had a sense of beauty. He was a cultivated European, uh, and he loved the the mountains. The one reason we put the uh, the the picture of him in Lederhosen on the on the cover of the book was that this every as soon as the semester was over, wherever he was teaching, he would go back to where he had started out when he was nine and ten and eleven years old, to the mountains of of Austria, uh, to uh, to stay for two or three months to recharge his his batteries. He's very very traditional sort of person. I think even though he he went through a divorce, I think it was a wrenching uh, experience. He he was not one of these. Academics who, if you read the the personal histories of, of lots of people who were contemporaries, they were horrible in terms of their uh, yeah their womanizing sorts of behaviors and all sorts of things. So he was somebody who made a mistake early on, tried to fix it, and it, it caused a lot of heartache when he when he got his divorce to to marry his his childhood sweetheart, as it were. But I mean, other other than that sort of uh, thing, he was he was someone who I think was who had the same sorts of values that are being articulated by people who call him a moral relativist, okay? But he's also somebody who is trying to articulate a liberal uh, a liberal vision of society. And a liberal vision of society is one that, that does not um, uh, say this is the way that these are the certain sets of values that you must, uh, you must have. There are certain values that you have to have, liberal values, <laughs> uh, but when it comes down to specific ways of living one's life, he, he didn't want to articulate that. That's just as a personal uh, way of approaching things. And when you're talking about the Constitution of Liberty, he says right in the introduction, he says, look, I, I have, I think liberty is, is a, a, an important and perhaps a supreme value. But I'm going to take a more, as you would, he didn't use this word, but as you put it, a more utilitarian approach. First of all, because he's an economist, and that's what economists do. They're looking at, you know, what are the most effective ways of of, of, of organizing uh, various policy alternatives. Um, but um, but he said, I, I don't want to say that liberty is the foundation of of the of what what I'm arguing for here, because I'm trying to convince people who are opponents who who don't agree with me. And if you're arguing with people who don't agree with you, you don't start as a starting premise, <laughs> the basis of your argument. So he's, he says that right up front. Um, I think so. I think that that needs to be uh, to be read carefully when when people are, are judging him. But he is not. I mean, this is yeah, the, the fusionist movement was taking place in the 50s. This was always a tension, continues to be a tension to today uh, uh, between the liberal worldview and, a, and what might be characterized as a social conservative worldview. And uh, it, I think it's a yeah, I I think it is often a fruitful conversation for both sides to have, uh, but but it, there are certain fundamental difficulties there with with uh, 
with uh, uh, okay. So I'm going to push, make a mix. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to push back on a couple different fronts, and you can okay, decide. Excellent. You can decide decide which one you want to swap back at me that on. So, um, and we're going to get to why I'm not a conservative because I, I I hold a lot of paper on that one. So first of all, particularly in the as you bring up fusionism, I'm a big part of those debates on the right, right? And I'm a Frank Meyer guy. I've written a lot about Frank Meyer. I wrote the 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 preface to the latest edition of the What Is Conservatism book that ISI puts out about the fusionist debate, all that stuff, and um, and. All right, so so my my first objection is that I think in in your characterization, I'm not saying what you actually believe, just how you articulated it just now, but also Hayekian types in general and liberals in general, and we listeners should know by now that when we're talking about liberal, we're talking about the sort of classical liberal sense of liberal and not necessarily as a synonym for progressive or whatever, or left-winger. Um that liberals do themselves an enormous disservice when they buy into the premises of whether it's social conservatives or serious left-wing types, when they frame liberalism as a system of neutral procedure. Um, because it is not, you know, take it out of the context of economics for two seconds. I mean, I can do it in the case of economics too, but it's just easier in the case of law. Um, there are a lot of people, there are a bunch of people on the right now who want to say that, you know, uh, conservative legalism, federalist society, original understanding stuff is bad because it's, it's procedurally, it's value neutral. It's just proceduralism to which I say nonsense. Um, the right to, and, 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 and this is a Hayekian argument, right? I, I, I think the Hayekian process of trial and error and emergence order and all of that doesn't just yield efficacious utilitarian institutions it yields superior moral institutions so the whole idea that murder is evil <laughs> and wrong um that emerges through trial and error there was a lot of murder in the evolutionary record until society realized we really just should have a blanket rule no murder particularly no and no killing without a trial right the right to the right to confront your accuser in a trial yeah, that's proceduralism. It's also a highly moral precept. Um, the right to uh, not incriminate yourself, the right to, uh, you know, worship as you please, to say what you please. These are not simply neutral things. And like, and just because Hayek can make a case that they're the best way on, on, on practical empirical grounds for organizing society does not mean that they are not also the most moral ways for organizing society. And um, the fact that everybody agrees now that murder is wrong or that rape is wrong um, or that uh, even persecuting people for their religious beliefs is wrong. These were really hard won lessons over the course of human history. And they are embedded in liberalism so much so that they've become dogmatically accepted by everybody. And we've lost sight of the fact that these are actually hard won moral victories. Um, the second place I'd push back a little bit is, is, and, and this stems from years of fighting. I'm in much better standing with my libertarian friends now than I was 20 years ago, but, uh, uh, the whole, why I'm not a conservative thing, Milton Friedman, God bless him, 
used to quote the title of that essay. Lots of people quote the title of that essay as if they think it is dispositive of, of a major question. And yet, if you actually read the essay, uh, which was originally intended as a, as a talk to slap down Russell Kirk at the Mount Pelerin Society, um, he was arguing against a European style of conservatism that lionized the past above all other things, um, that was sort of shot through with, the, with nostalgia, which is what Robert Nisbet would call the rust of memory. And with claims to the natural law and, and with a hierarchical you know, justification of hierarchy that I, I it, you're exactly right. That, that is the, the sort of conservatism he was opposing and which does not well describe uh, what, what you might favor. Right. And so he and he argues in that essay, which I quote all of the time, that he says that in America, America is one of the one, only places in the world where you can be a defender of liberty and call yourself a conservative because we are trying to conserve a fundamentally liberal revolution. And he says, if I have to come up with a label for myself, it is old Whig, which is exactly what Edmund Burke, the father of Anglo-American conservative, called himself. So it's it, it vexes me sometimes. <laughs> I'm not saying you're doing it. I'm just saying that this is one of these things where I, I, I feel like I have to fight this fight quite often. I, I accept uh, your, your, your claims there uh, completely. Um, uh, and yeah, just factually, exactly right. That he was worried that a specific variant of conservatism that uh, existed in Europe was going to be imported to the United States and, 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 uh, so yes, I, I take your point on that completely. Yeah, and so on the fusionism side, the Frank Ma the, the 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 Meyer position, which I think I've gotten wrong in the past and have come around to, was you know he never it's sort of like the Austrian school thing. He never coined the phrase fusionist. That was coined by uh, Brent Bozell, who was a critic. Right? It's almost so many of these labels, uh, you know, like neoconservative was originally an ad hominem. You know, it's like a lot of these labels come from critics and then the way you sort of show that you've arrived is arrived as you own them. And, um, uh, but Meyer's argument was less that we need to fuse these two things together or that it's a political strategy with a three legged stool and all that kind of thing. And more of a, this tension is inherent in Western civilization and in American civilization. And I don't think Hayek would disagree with that. I, I look, we, I just taught a class, um, with a, uh, uh, wonderful young philosopher on liberalism and its critics. And we read Meyer. And I think that, you know, his, his vision is one that Hayek would be quite comfortable with. And just as you say, it was the vision that came out of Kirk. And I think he also, um, he came to have kind of a dislike of, of William F. Buckley, as it turns out, uh, as well. Because he thought that Buckley was was just being uh, too flip, uh, which of course he was. I mean, he, you know, he's a very entertaining guy. Um, but uh, uh, thought him of him. I I think he he probably thought of him as in the same way that he thought of Galbraith as people who are who have got a lot of public attention, who are who are um, just provocateurs, and and provo provoking in ways that are not helpful in terms of trying to to get at serious issues. So. Um, Yes, but someone like uh, like Meyer, um, when I when I read his essay, I thought, yeah, this guy's reasonable, and I think I would agree with him. And just let me reinforce for your listeners your point that uh, at the very beginning of why I'm not a conservative, that he said in America, conservatives are people who are 
for basically trying to preserve that that liberal uh, tradition. So quite right. American conservatives are different uh, different ball of wax. So we, you know, I, I have, I, I, you know, I have, I have the he wrote an essay called "Why I'm Not a Conservative," um, thrown in my face a lot by people um, over the years, and I always try to, I always make the argument I just made to one extent or another. But then I also will point out. Hayek also didn't like the term libertarian either. Um, so what are you talking about? Why was he not a libertarian? Why didn't he like it? So in correspondence, he was uh, somewhat dismissive of people like Rothbard, for example. We should explain that Murray Rothbard was a brilliant, brilliant crank. Some people some people emphasize the crank more than other people, but like he had cranky tendencies at the very least, I think it's fair to say. Right. And and I think I would just say that he's not an anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-libertarian or anything like that. He believed that there is a role for government, the very minimum, to to uh, protect property rights. You know, just the the, the the standard stuff that comes out of the the liberal uh, uh, tradition uh, that you can't have a society if you don't have have you know minimal protections in place for people to. Be able to do something when somebody violates a contract or or, or uh, you know, tries to impose force or coerce other uh, one person coercing another. So the sorts of things that are articulated, I think, very well in the Constitution of Liberty, is that they you do need a, a government, and it's not government. He actually goes so far as to say it's not the size of government as much as it is what sorts of constraints are placed on government. You can have the government for example, uh, offer certain goods for sale as long as they don't say we're the only ones <laughs> who can offer them for sale and that others are, are able to compete uh, uh, on equal terms uh, against them. So he was, he was probably further, further left in terms of the, if we want to use that left-right distinction, which is such a horrible one, but uh, you know, further left than, 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 than many, uh, many regular libertarians might be certainly. And, and, uh, and, other other people who might otherwise agree with the Austrian school more generally. If you wanted to look at a spectrum, you could go uh, Rothbard and then von Mises and then Hayek. You know, they, there's there's lots of distinctions within the Austrian school as well. All right. So uh, th this is a this is sort of a sociology inside baseball question that I'm just honestly curious about, and I don't know if many other people will be. Um, uh, how was it, in your estimation, that, and this is more about von Mises than it was about Hayek, but there was this, where did this come from in the 80s and into the 90s of this sort of weird, truly weird, some racism at the fringe um, uh, overlap between von Miesian libertarianism and um sort of uh Ron Paul all the way over to you know there's this whole you know there's the Lou Rockwell crowd which I which is one of the reasons why I was in bad odor with libertarians for a while is because I picked the fights with the wrong kinds of libertarians but um how is it that one of the most fundamentally anti-racist political philosophies could have been co-opted the way it was in certain corners by if not outright racist, then sort of racist sympathetic types who were being too clever by half. Um, where, where did that come from? 
that's a that's a great question, and I don't have an answer uh, for it. I just know that the people that um, I came to know within the Austrian camp were the anti-racist, you know, real liberals that 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 we respect, whose ideas we respect, and uh, you wouldn't see that sort of thing in Mises. <laughs> I don't see how they got how that could be gotten out of von Mises, but it it is the case that. Um, you have to, I think, do a bit of a network analysis and take a look at specific individuals who ended up being important within that movement um, uh, who had uh, these views. But uh, I sometimes tell the story. I, I was invited to a Mises Institute summer camp. I'd never been before. I appreciated the Mises Institute website, still do, has lots of um of literature on it that is is uh, useful. It's a great go-to site for that. Um, and uh, it turned out that Pete Betke was at the same meeting. And, you know, there's this antagonism between George Mason and I think NYU versus uh, Mises Institute that, that plays out in terms of, of the actual, you know, players in the, in, in the, in the movement, a movement of which I'm an historian. Uh, but I haven't gotten to that, to that period, and I don't know how important that will be in telling Hayek's story. Actually, so I may not may not be dealing with it. But to return to my 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 personal anecdote, uh, yeah, I I found the meeting to be very strange, and uh, never went back. And and some of the there there was at one point a uh, a dinner where uh, I think Ralph Rako was talking, and then either through some either something that he said or through the question and answer period, some really disturbing stuff was said. And and kind of simultaneously, Pete and I just stood up and walked out without any signal to each other. We just were both uh, uh, appalled at, at what was being said. And I don't have a, a direct memory of exactly what was what was said, but it was it was appalling in the way that you indicate. Yep. So uh, and and they, you know, there was another uh, episode where Pete was on a panel, and they were talking about Ludwig Lachmann, who was someone who was because sometimes described as the German Austrian, so it's somebody from Germany who uh, was affiliated with the Austrian movement, uh, had been a student of Hayek's in, in, in the 30s at LSE, went to South Africa, and when I first uh, started to uh, learn about the Austrians, is when I went to NYU in 1981-82, and at that time Lachman was coming from South Africa every spring. I got to know him quite well. We had meetings once a week. And and uh, uh, so at this Mises Institute meeting, um, someone, I think, yeah, Pete just mentioned, and you know, Lachman said, and uh, and there was a bronze cheer done by, by Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, at the mention of the word Lachman, the name Lachman. It's just outrageous behavior, outrageous, childlike, outrageous behavior. I mean, yeah, these these are people who are true intellects, like Lachman, being being razzed by by midgets. So yeah, it's a it's it's a sad thing, and I don't know how it happened. I really don't know how it happened. Uh, uh, and in some ways, I'm not interested, except that it does put a a, a black stain on 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 people who are. Who are responsible uh, uh, liberals who then get tarred with that by people who are who are critics? Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like in the in the realm of 
oxymoronic positions. Libertarians for slavery is pretty high up there, you know? Pretty tough to, to square that, sir. Okay, so in the little bit of time we got left, um, I, I, thank you for indulging me on this stuff. Um, question I get, I, I hear a lot of people wondering is, and I agree with you, like knowledge problem, uh, the, the, the knowledge problem, the uses of knowledge in society essay is probably the single most name check thing uh, on this podcast, or it's certainly up there. Um, and often it's because there are a lot of people, there's this whole group of people on the right who seem to think that like when we used to say experts and economic planners can't um, outthink the market, aren't smarter than the market, um, they seem to think there was some asterisk in there that said, yeah, but if social conservatives are in charge, they can. Um, and there are a bunch of people on the right who are into, you know, industrial policy now. Yeah, that's that's bizarre to me. Yeah. And so I guess the question I have for you, though, is I reject it entirely when it comes to the idea that somehow socially conservative economic planners are going to be better than socially liberal economic planners. But what about artificial intelligence? Um, what do you think does that do to the does what does that do to the whole knowledge problem thing? Um, if AI can, in fact, you know, with chat and PT, whatever that thing is called, you know, there are these things now that seem to be able to sort of, as you were talking about the sensory order argument about the billions of neurons, if you have billions of computer chips in, in effect, um, does that mean that the, the old argument is no longer applies? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think you, one answer is you can never say never. Um, uh, so, or you should never say never, that it can't work. Uh, I have to say that this kind of question has come up through the course of my now almost 40 years of, of studying Hayek, where people said, well, you know, you can, we've got computers now. Longa was saying in 67, now we just feed it all into a supercomputer. They, tr they thought they were going to try something like that in Chile. Uh, it didn't, that didn't pan out under Allende. Uh, they, people later would say, well, what about computable general equilibrium models? We can do it uh, with these things. And then uh, there was claims that it could be done with um, uh, other advances with neuroeconomics where they we could just put electrodes in people's heads and be able to figure out what they... So, I mean, my one, one commonsensical uh, response is, you know, why don't you just find a township somewhere and try it out? You know, just give us a proof of concept. Um, you know, some, you find some leftist place and it's just give it a try. You know, just, just let's have a planned society. We'll, we'll do that. But yeah, I, I think that that's, that's one response that is actually probably the appropriate response. But in terms of the technical stuff, I think it is a, a, it's an interesting question. I think one of the things that would be very difficult, I think that, that what we've got uh, uh, currently, uh, at least, is the ability if 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 tastes and preferences don't change to to deliver things very quickly and perhaps uh, perhaps shape people's shape tapes and preferences through you know what we what we show them <laughs> the AI uh, procedures that are that are that are ubiquitous on on these social media platforms that are that are generating you know let we now know this person completely here are the ads that are going to really uh, trip his or her uh, uh, trigger. Um, but 
it's the emergence of new things that I wonder if AI can can handle. I mean, who's creating what? You know, I chat. What's it called? Chat chatbot NPT. I can never remember how you call it. Whatever it's called. It has to be based on something. You know, there's definitely the garbage in garbage out problem. Yeah. There's a reflexivity thing there that I think is, is difficult. Um, so, I mean, I, yeah, never say never, but to what effect? And this is all, this is in the realm of a technical uh, set of arguments. It does ignore the Liberty thing, <laughs> which is, uh, I think an important, inc- will increasingly become an important uh, component of, of such discussions. Yeah. So it's, it's really funny that you bring up the why don't you just take a little township and give it a try thing, because this is actually my response to a lot of the new nationalist, you know, post-liberal industrial policy types, you know, the ones who want to have sort of this, you know, the politics needs to be about the pursuit of the Aristotelian highest good and it needs to be Catholic and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, OK, look, you might be right, but why is your political project setting its sights on imposing this? on 330 million Americans who are not going to vote for it. Why not like just try it in Rhode Island, right? <laughs> like You could probably get the numbers together to influence public policy. And the people who want to live that way can live there. That's what the whole point of federalism is. And, but they don't like it because it's not, it's, it, 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 it exposes and illuminates that a lot of this stuff is really about power and not actually oh, about the is. ideas. Yeah, I mean, who who decides? <laughs> who decides? Uh, that that always has to be the question. And 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 that's a big part of you know that is. I mean, at, at AI, we're having all these conver- internal conversations about what does republic small r republicanism mean as opposite from liberalism, and it's a fascinating conversation. And I don't want to give away other people's goods on this, but. Um, there is nothing inherent to liberalism as Hayek understood it or as anybody understood it that said you can't have very traditionally bound local communities that are allowed to make their own mistakes so long as you repre- you know respect basic fundamental rights um, and have the right to exit you know but go be Amish be my guest but don't tell the other 329 million people to be Amish too if they don't want to be and and people hate hearing that because there is something in our lizard brains that says, no, 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 no. People aren't allowed to live wrong. And I have to be in charge of making sure that people live right. And um, and I do think there's a conception of living right. It's sort of we were talking about, in, you know, these hard word, hard earned lessons of liberalism about murder and fair trials and all the rest. There are a lot of those lessons. But beyond them. Knock yourself out. Do what you want to do. Um, all right. So last couple of quick questions. Uh, I know this is, I don't want to give the readers, any listeners, any spoilers about the, 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 uh, the, the second volume of your biography, but Hayek did in fact pass away, um, in 1992. How compass meant this? What, and I don't mean this with any disrespect. It just, it would be such a tragedy given who he was not to see the Berlin wall fall and understand it and see the fall of communism. And how, how did he process that stuff at the time? Um, and was he up to speed to have a full appreciation of it? And did he have an optimistic reaction or a pessimistic one? Yeah. Good, good, good question. So he, I'm sure he knew uh, about the fall. 
Uh, but he, the last seven years of his life, so basically from 85 to 92, he stopped traveling. He just laid, you know, stayed at home in Freiburg, sometimes went to the, the mountain retreats that they would go to in the summer. So he was, he was not uh, uh, able to get out, and he, was, he had a hard time working, you know, writing. He still did a few things, um, but he uh, no, he did understand that it was happening uh, for sure. He just couldn't participate because he physically was unable to to travel. Um, so the fact that he that no one <laughs> no one heard much from him didn't mean that he wasn't he wasn't still around. And he was uh, there was actually a a rather uh, a strange and very very depressing book that was written by uh, his secretary Charlotte Cubitt. Uh, she kept a diary, a daily diary, and then uh, created this book out of her diary. And so much of it in the last seven years is just all the miserable ways that your body can fall apart, um, basically. So uh, it's not that his mind was gone, but his body was was not doing well. Um, and lastly, was he a happy man? That's a great question. He was a social person. He enjoyed society. But he was also somebody who didn't have very many close friends by his own admission. You know, he numbered them three. But I think, you know, it, most people who met him in kind of casual things, like where you'd be at a conference, he would engage. He enjoyed intellectual engagement. I don't think he was a small talker. OK, so he's not somebody who, who did that. But he, he really enjoyed the academic life. So I think of him as, a, as kind of a very uh, a pure intellect in that regard. You, you were asked whether he's intellectual. He's somebody who, for, for whom intellectual pursuits really uh, tripped his trigger. Uh, and I think if he was in, at a conference where people were talking about stuff, particularly his own ideas, uh, he would have been very engaged and very happy. Um, uh, within his own personal life, uh, uh, you know, he, he did come into conflict with, with his birth family over politics because they were in Austria and Germany while he was in London. And they were more nationalist and somewhat anti-Semitic and all that, right? Yeah, they had, well, his 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 mother was certainly anti-Semitic. His father was kind of he he was in a a German medical association that had an Aryan paragraph. But I mean, it was also as we try to show in the book, you have to understand the the the, the times in which they were living and, and the environment in which they were living. This was not at all unusual, unfortunately, uh, uh, for for various professional organizations. I have these things at the time, but um, so but he always yeah he went his own way. Uh, so he's very independent in that ways. And I think to the extent that independence is a sign of, of happiness, it, it, he did he did get to do what he what he uh, thought was important in his life in terms of, of his pursuits. He had he had uh, occasional periods of depression, so certainly he wasn't happy during those times. But then he snapped out of them. Uh, yes, he used to have this uh, uh, joke. You know, I tried I tried old age and I didn't like it. You know? <laughs> so, so now I'm back. So I mean, it's a uh, I think we'll we'll try to round out our picture of him more in the second part of his life. Uh, uh, he was not happy in his first marriage, uh, uh, but he was. There was also uh, he was happy with his. I think he you know he's loved his children. Uh, certainly his his daughter Christine he had a, had a good relationship if if sometimes fraught because she was independent too, and she wasn't particularly happy with <laughs> with his decision making vis a vis her mother. Um, so there we go. Bruce Caldwell, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, the book is um, Hayek, A Life, 
and you can get it everywhere. Um, I'm actually going to, uh, because it, it plays so perfectly to type, be taking it on a trip to the Caribbean shortly. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and I'm very excited. It's a heavy book to carry around. It's all right. Uh, we'll, we'll manage. And um, thank you so much for doing this. And when the second, if, if not beforehand, when the second volume comes out, we definitely would love to have you back. Oh, that would be lovely. Thank you so much for this, Jonah. I've enjoyed it immensely. Okay, so Bruce Caldwell has left the studio. Um, my apologies to friends um, and other Hayek geeks out there who uh, have, I no doubt, some burning question about Hayek that I did not get to or that we did not discuss. Um, uh, there's just a lot to cover. And, um, you know, I probably should have done a little bit more about the guy's life story. Um, uh, by the way, Jim Pethokoukis, uh, my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, frequent, sometimes guest on this podcast, he did an interview with with um, Bruce that gets more into his life story stuff. You can find it through either Ricochet or the AI website. Um, and I had that in my head, so I, I, I wanted to get at some of the stuff I was holding paper on for so long. Um, but uh, it's supposed to be truly a wonderful book, and I am uh, I was not joking when I said I'm I have a vacation planned in the Caribbean with some friends and we're going to, I'm going to bring it. Um, I should, you know, I kept wondering where I should stop and say, okay, let's explain that. And, um, uh, cause there are some things that I think people are like, what, what are they talking about? Who is Von Mises, all this kind of stuff. And maybe I got to have continuity back on here and we'll just do another conservatism one-on-one thing. Um, but one point just sort of that I kept wanting to get into and, and didn't, and Hayek writes about this explicitly. I can't remember where I'm sure it's in more than one place. Um, there part of the way to understand Hayek's project is that Hayek came from a cultural, for want of a less grandiose term milieu, um, where, aristocracy, monarchy, empire were either very li still live propositions or very recent propositions. The ideas defending them, all of that kind of thing. Also, the rise of nationalism, as, 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 as Bruce mentioned, was very live at the time. And, um, and of course, socialism. And the, the thing that Hayek stressed is that liberalism, when it first emerged, um, was a spirit of rebellion and liberty uh, and liberation uh, from monarchy, right? It was the enemy of monarchy and it was the enemy of statism and authoritarianism, you know, um, first the philosophes versus the, you know, the ensemble regime in France and then the philosophes uh, who were, you know, again, speaking in broad, broad terms, um, the liberals who were in tension with Napoleon. Um, the liberals like Locke and Smith who were in tension with, uh, monarchy, even, even Burke to a certain extent had, had his tensions with, certainly with absolutism, right? He, he, he certainly believed in the monarchy, but he also believed in the power of institutions in balance with each other in society. But liberalism was the hot thing, the cool thing, the fun thing, the smart thing, uh, the, the the freedom loving thing and it sort of defined the left for a good chunk of time 
And then with the rise of socialism um, as a doctrine and as a movement, all of a sudden liberalism gets denounced as a right-wing thing, in part because liberalism had been so successful in making societies more liberal than they had ever been, right? Maybe not as liberal as some would like, or certainly some today would like, but liberalism had been ascended. Manchester liberalism, free trade, economic liberty, uh, democracy, these things had been um, surging for a while. And one of the quote-unquote downsides to it, I think it was an upside, was that you started to get a lot of rich people who weren't aristocrats. And so it was seen as, liberalism was seen to some extent as this doctrine or ideology that defended uh, the economic ruling classes, which were considered a new economic aristocracy, which was a common, common way of framing things. And that made liberalism seem right-wing, defending reaction, defending the powers that be, defending the status quo, and the new hotness, the new cool thing, the new rebellious thing was to be socialist. And, um, and this is the, one of the things that drove Hayek crazy, and I don't mean crazy crazy, I just mean it was a, a great source of tension and, and motivation in his writing, is that this bothered him a great deal, because he, he considered defending liberalism to still be the cool thing, the smart thing, the exciting thing, the thing that's on the side of progress. And um, the fact that it got shoved over in contemporary debates as a right-wing thing instead of a left-wing thing did not change his point of view about that at all. And that's, um, that's one of my inspirations for my understanding of what conservatism is, is that, um, you know, I don't just mean the conservative temperament. I mean, you know, Anglo-American conservatism, which is deeply informed by liberalism, is that it doesn't matter whether it's popular or unpopular, whether it's in power or out of power, fashionable or unfashionable. It's good and it's true. And, um, and it's, sometimes it's more fun to be defending it when it's unpopular um, and out of power than when it is, it's popular and in power. And, um, but that's one of the great things about, anyway, that's one of the great things about Hayek. That's one of the things I think is important to understand about Hayek is that um, he stayed consistent in his defense of liberalism rightly understood, regardless of where it placed him in various contemporary ideological or political debates. And that's sort of one of the ideas of this podcast called The Remnant, is that it sort of has a, a similar, that you should have a similar outlook. And that, you know, fads come and go, opinions come and go, popular sentiments come and go, but there's some things that are enduringly true and worth defending. And this idea, you know, liberalism doesn't count all, it, it, it doesn't exhaust all of the things that are worth defending, but it's an important component of them. And anyway, I just thought I should get that out there. Um, I didn't want to use up his time um, making that point. And so with that, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, and uh, this is uh, pretty much the last week of David French being a full-time employee of the Dispatch, which is sort of heartbreaking. Um, and uh, thank you so much to all the positive feedback I got about my G-File about Portland and my solo podcast about Portland. Um, more about that another time. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>